Hey everybody, it's cold, it's freezing, but it's going to be warm here. It's spring term episode two, the Teacher Squad podcast. What's going on here today, Heather? Well, plenty to warm you up. We've got some ex-girlfriends and maybe a bit of dolphin Mm. watching. And I'm going to be talking about the importance of drop-down menu explaining when we're trying to do modelled writing. Mm. Mm, Exciting. Um, I'm going to be celebrating some good news about graphic novels. Oh, can't wait to hear about that. And uh, we're going to be interviewing somebody to tell us the lesser told narratives in history. Fantastic. We better get started. Sounds jam-packed. So, Jane, um, before we get into, you know, the main features of the podcast, I just feel like we need to mention Bermuda. Do you know Do you know where it is on the map? I don't know. Is it near the triangle? I don't know. <laughs> it is near the triangle. I had to look it up on the map, but the reason I looked it up is that we keep appearing on the Bermuda Education Podcast um, charts we we must have a little following then. I'd really love to know who it is. You know, That's email brilliant. us. You know, Jane yeah. at com. Heather at theteachersquadpodcast.com. Maybe, Jane, we need to go and do our podcast live from Bermuda. Get your Bermuda shorts out. Let's do it. I mean, I'm feeling a bit rubbish today, so I need something to look forward to. I've got to say, are you feeling a bit rubbish today? Well, it's know. yeah, it's dark. It's cold. Yes. January yes. lasts for 20 million days and everybody's got £1.50 to spend. Tough month, isn't it? Yeah. Is it Blue Monday? It's got to be. I think we're recording on Blue Monday, I think. So, it yeah. Is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, feeling a bit rubbish. Yeah, I'd, I'd a cry today. Yeah, it must be Blue Monday. In fact, I find it very hard to regulate my emotions. I've lost my work, lost my paper. Uh, you know, lost time, lost me marbles, I think. That's the only thing I think intact is me. <laughs> How's, your pipe? How's your pipe? My, my, my pipe's mended. Thanks. Oh, Thanks, Billy. Yeah. Brilliant. There pipe's... we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're laughing and we're joking. But if, you know, if people are genuinely struggling, we, we, we're we happy to chat with people who are struggling, aren't we, Jane? But also we'll put in the yeah. show notes the education support uh link who who are there to to help and guide uh, educators if they're finding things a little bit tough yeah yeah and I think when it is tough I think you know that is when you do have to hang on to kind of the slice of nice and it is yeah. you know you've got to practice happiness and as Oscar Wilde told us you know we're all in the gutter but some of us are looking at the stars so um oh. you know that's what star have you I'm, been looking at this week, Jane? What are you grateful for? Well, I am looking starry-eyed, Ooh. actually, at, at everybody, because I've got a new strategy this year, which is rather than meeting new situations, which is I'm busy, I'm stressed, I'm at breaking point, my social battery is really worn down, you know, rushing around closed off, I am meeting people like this. You, who I'm about to meet, 
are an incredible, gorgeous human. And I'm going to look at you with starry eyes. I think you're going to be really interesting. I'm going to look at them. Uh, we're full of hope and that I want to get to know them really well. And I'm going to look at them and think, wow, you're really interesting. And I quite like your glasses. And <laughs> this opening up, this open heartedness, um, you know, is, is already stood me in good stead, actually, in the last few days. Yeah. And um, I'm going to tell you a very quick story. Um, I don't know if Ian wants me to tell you this story, but um, Ian's, brace yourself. I'm Ian's just going to girlfriend Oh, wow. What's going to happen oh, now no. is there's going to be a bit in the pod that goes, Ian's ex-girlfriend and Heather's gratitude. And Ian's just produced <laughs> and put it out. <laughs> Let's see if it makes the cut, Jane. Go for it. Ian's ex-girlfriend, insert a sound effect. Duh, duh, <laughs> duh. Um, yeah, used to live in Norway and then recently moved back to England. So, like, as, you know... Ian's wife you kind of think oh god this could get a bit tricky you know do I need to be moody about it should I have my hackles up I thought well if I've decided to be more open-hearted then that's not what I should do really so um we got invited around this weekend and obviously I looked amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's usual. A provocateur underneath just to make you feel extra sassy Exactly. But I just thought, you know, I'm going, I'm not going to be a moody cow bag. I am going to be really open hearted. And you know what? I, I was really nice and kind and uh, met some new friends who weren't my friends. They were their friends. And actually I was a bit real and vulnerable and I wasn't showing off. I wasn't trying to get one up or having a dig or any of that. And actually I had a really good time. And I met other working mums who were really stressed out. I met another mum who had four kids. I've got four kids. And she just said, oh, over the time, I feel like I've lost some friends because how do you get, how do you invite somebody with four kids to your house? And she says, I feel like I've missed out a bit. And, um, you know, how do you invite a family of six? And um, and then we talked about mum guilt, losing our temper with our kids and, um, you know, like the shameful stuff you shouldn't really talk about. And we were just really real and honest. And um, I came away and I actually thought, God, is this a bit weird? Like some of one of my new friends actually might be my husband's ex-girlfriend. <laughs> That's yeah. all right. That's all right. That's all Ian, right. Ian, I don't know. I think he's worried if he starts sharing too many stories together. But yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit There's a line, nervous. isn't there? We don't, yeah, we don't go over that line. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't go, what date did you start no! seeing Ian then? You know, like one of them knows, we're not going to do that. We're just only going to move forward, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was very grown up of me, I thought. And actually it was very positive. So I'm grateful actually for just not being a, a twat, you know, and just saying, yeah, you know, sometimes there's a lot of expectations of like how you should treat people because they did that in the past or whatever. And just sometimes you've got to get over yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, sounds like a positive experience, Jane. But when you say about losing yeah. friends, there's a thing with teaching, isn't there? It's kind of like social calendar is closed during term time and you kind of need those strong teacher friends, don't you? Or those good friends yes. who are like, I get that you can't do it on a term time. You know, I'll see you yeah, in yeah. half term. Oh. Yeah, you need to have if you're a friend with a teacher, they need they need to be forgiving, don't they? That you can just be a bit all or nothing, uh, linked to academic year stuff, and that's yeah. hard if you're not in teaching because yeah. it can or, or get... married to a teacher. I mean, yeah, it's, you've got to know when to just back off. <laughs> yeah. uh, shall I tell you my gratitude, Jane? Yeah, will you? Yeah, so uh, mine's mine's quite small, but really quite nice. So um, we're recording on Monday. Yesterday, on Sunday, my daughter and I just went for a little wander downtown. And and as we were walking back, we walked past Porthgwydden Beach. And I said, look, there's dolphins. And there were dolphins in the bay, beautiful pod of dolphins just jumping out of the water and just beautiful. Very, very lucky to live in, you know, a place where we can walk down and and we can see that. And we walk past that all of the time going, this is the spot where everyone sees them. It doesn't happen. You know, you don't catch them very often. Um, But it was so nice just to, you know, get out and breathe in some fresh air and slow down and enjoy a little magic moment together. Um, oh. Yeah, it, it was nice. That's it just really kind good. of, made, you know, I said about my word of the week about noticing. So it's trying to just slow things down and, and notice a little bit more. And I know it's cold and, you know, but yeah. maybe, maybe with our classes, I'm pretty sure most classes can't go for a walk and go dolphin spotting. I mean, if you can, if your school's that close, then yeah, get yourselves outside. But you know, you can take your class out for a, for a little read, can't you? You can do some on plein air drawing or some singing outside and just change the atmosphere. And it's good to be outside in in nature and do a bit of noticing, isn't it? So, so I'm grateful for the dolphins. Oh, and I actually do remember as a kid just being not so much as an adult because you just run ragged, aren't you? As you say, you don't slow down enough. But that when you go outside and you breathe and you can see your hot breath, I mean, that's just great, isn't it? Especially around here. It was minus two today when I got up. What was that? It's it's certainly dropped in temperature, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't like being cold, Jane. I'm a proper old lady. I've got a blanket over my knees while we're recording. (laughs) Every week I build the picture of how rock and roll I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, your thermal vest, your blankets. Yeah, exciting, (laughs) if anything. (laughs) Content. Let's go with content, Jane. Have you been having a think of a sentence of the week? What have you been uh, thinking about this week? Well, um, I think about this all the time and um, I've probably talked about this in part before, but um, it's something that just keeps cropping up and um, it's really about um, how we model writing. And um, I think 
there's so many different ways to model writing. And I, I know you've heard me chunter on before about putting a sentence up in lights. This can almost act like a, a grammar wireframe, you know, like we're going to put a, a Catherine Rundell sentence up in lights and then we're going to like get rid of the content and then mimic it. But um, the bit of modeling I wanted to talk about is actually quite small and um, it's this sort of, I, I, I suppose the sentence is this, our moral duty with modeling uh, is to provide like a wealth of options as we're modeling to kids. So we can say it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, so that they can see, um, you know, there's lots of options when they want to create a particular effect. And um, sometimes um, I think I think it's kind of pressure on perhaps how a school does it, but there's a lot of talk writing that becomes like fixed on a PowerPoint and actually it needs to be a bit more dynamic and in the moment and kind of a, a lived live event with pupils so they can see the process yeah. and they can almost see two things at once, you know, the words revealed on a page and, and then the behind the scenes thinking and, um, what sometimes happens is because it's fixed on a PowerPoint, it sort of feels like here's one I've prepared earlier. It feels very kind of blue Peter. Um, and it has to, ha at the heart of it, have like a pen, like a real or an electronic. We've got to have a pen in our hand. And um, I think because modelling can make you quite anxious as a teacher as well, a lot of it you can't do on the fly and, and you do have to plan for it. And sometimes I think if we do it on the fly, it can come across as Miss is amazing at writing or Sir, and it's easy for them, you know, Miss is amazing and here she is or they are, you know, just being good at it again. But what we've really got to do is drench them in language so that it's kind of grouped and sorted and everything we need to do is about thesaurus thinking, you know, I'm, and it's not just about words. It can be thesaurus phrases or clauses and our work needs to be less about dictionary definitions. You know, it's like, you know, instead of old house, it could be run down house, could be dilapidated house. It's almost like that drop down menu. And I think when you say thesaurus thinking, everybody gets it in terms of kind of words, but sometimes it has to be bigger than that, you know. So let's say you're writing about a stream, uh, you know, it might be the, oh, I'm going to drop down some quick similes here, the crystal blue stream, the butterfly blue stream, the dragonfly blue, and then, you know, other chunks like these verb chunks coming through, trickling through, weaving slowly through, meandering around the forest. Oh, I'm going to think about how it's glistening now, glistening, gleaming, shimmering over moss-slick rocks, smooth rocks, time-worn rocks, so that there's just so many different ways. And it's not just about one words. It's like bigger chunks of language because otherwise 
if you don't do the drop down menu of it, kids is like watch it and go, Miss is amazing. Yeah. Thank you. But they can't see what their choices and options are. And um when when I work with schools, I think sometimes in a bid to get ready for writing, it's like a lot of information is put on a PowerPoint. And then what's lost is the thinking about it. And actually more than that, the options for the children, the, the optionness of writing that's locked in modeling is fundamentally critical. And, and I think even sometimes if we're giving kids options, we're not giving them enough. It's like, here are six options here. And sometimes you've got, uh, you know, a chunk of language that's four words or six words, you know, that, uh, and then they get more used to that kind of playing around. Cause the last thing we want is writing to be like closed procedure, replace this one word. Cause that's utterly naff. We don't want it to be that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's hard though, Heather. It is hard, but to, to be fair, that's one of the best things I like doing at the front of the class. I think a flip chart. I know you said digital is an option, but there's something about having a real pen on real paper at the front and actually modeling what it looks like, placing the ideas on paper, chopping, changing. You know, we're expecting them to do it on a page in front of them, and it, and yeah. it's being clear about the, the 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 purpose of that modeling, isn't it? Are you are you just demonstrating, or or is it truly shared? And actually, sometimes the kids will come back with some. Once you've given them those layers of options, they will. Yes, it, it just sparks their brain, doesn't it? Then it's like the penny drops, and they go, "I get what you mean. I get what." And then yeah. they come back with some truly brilliant ideas that you can weave yeah. together. I love a bit of shared yeah. writing. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. And I think the other thing I just wanted to say there, what I, I actually adore about children is, um, and I don't know. It's a weird one as well, uh, because actually not all children are reading a lot and, and in depth and, and uh, extensively. Um, and obviously, of course, we know that their writing is going to radically improve if they do so. But there is also something wonderful uh, about the fact that a child's thinking for writing isn't um, influenced by cliche. Mm-hmm. So you... I mean, I'll never forget this year for child, um, we were talking about, um, it was actually linked to the book, The Red Tree, you know, the, uh, the book by Sean Tan, the picture book. And, um, you know, we, we were exploring, you know, how the child felt and was anybody listening to them because they obviously felt really sad. And we just talked about like what, or even like you want to say something, but you can't. And uh, we were, were trying to come up with a way to describe their voice and this and we um this child said their dry violin voice I love that it's like we wanted to be a musical instrument and be really beautiful and loud but it was dry and I just love that and then we got on on that train of thought about scratchy you know and then uh you know uh, insert another instrument voice you know um it's just so fascinating I had (laughs) violin lessons yeah, yeah, I think I would describe my violin playing as dry. And <laughs> oh, yeah. 
It's okay, world. I don't play it anymore. It's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? But yeah, yeah, I love that. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, have, have you got your your sentence in a pithy, sort of well organised chunk of thinking there? Heather? Well, well organised, yeah, because. Quite often you have lovely kind of flowing sentences, Jane, and, and I feel like my sentence is a bit short and there it is. I've obviously taken the time to think about expanding the sentence more. So I took myself to, to year two to think of my sentence. And I thought I'm going to write a proper exclamation yes. sentence to make me sound a bit posher than what I is uh, and my northern yeah. roots. So so here's my exclamation sentence. If I've got it wrong, you can tell me on. Best posh voice. What yes. good news about graphic novels it is. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, talk about graphic novels because this week we have had the announcement from Scholastic that as well as doing their brilliant Laugh Out Louds, the Lollies Awards, uh, books that are about making kids laugh, they have introduced a new award for graphic novels which is just brilliant excellent yeah uh, so it's a brand new award and it's going to celebrate the uk and ireland's favorite graphic novels and graphic novels have seen a, a massive massive growth um and lots of them are being used in the classrooms but i was going to add another sentence to that and and it got a bit alliterative i got a bit excited so good news graphic novels but growing knowledge greatly needed and I think mm. there are many teachers who think oh brilliant graphic novels and they you know they want to put them in their classroom they want to make them available for for their pupils but there's a bit of a uh, an idea about them and a mindset about them that they are a gateway that they are for the reluctant reader um, yep. And this week, Mark Bradley, who is the creator of um, brilliant graphic novel series, has made a comment about this. And it starts with sigh. Comic readers aren't reluctant readers. They're not struggling with prose and so going for an easier option. Images don't make texts less complex. Comics aren't transitional stages to prose. Comics aren't lesser. They're just a different way of communicating meaning. So I think we probably, we, we've acknowledged in schools, I, can, I know that lots of people ask for them uh, to have them in their libraries. Teachers are trying to get them, you know, in front of their pupils. But there's probably a little mind set shift that that's required uh to give them value in their own right and not just see them as something i hear I hear the language well we need to wean them off do we do we need to wean them off mm -hmm. actually there are really powerful media in their own rights that can do things that pros cannot do you know, there's things that yeah. pros can do that other media can't do. That's why people still love reading books when we can watch mm. film, watch television. They mm. do different things, and it's about acknowledging uh, that. Um, in the subscription box that we chose together, we did 
choose a graphic. Oh, I hate these yes. cameras. We did choose peanut butter yes. and crackers. And I interviewed uh, Paige, um, who is the creator of that. And as I was preparing for that interview, um, I, I remember pouring over, you know, the images and, and just re-enlightening myself that the, the, the the, the visual literacy that we can get out of that and what we can discuss uh, and, you know, work with children. We really need to make sure that we are giving them space and value and that that comes out to the children so they don't see them as a lesser. They don't see them as a, a gateway and something that they need to come off. Some graphic novels are incredibly complex and you have to learn how to read them and navigate your way across the images and the, and the pages. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got lots of bits and bobs in front of me that kind of shout out about graphic novels uh, in the weekend um from the Sunday Times, children's book of the week is Bunny versus Monkey. And Nicolette Jones, who chooses it, says comic strips with lots of explosions and fart jokes are not generally considered to be sophisticated reading. But the best-selling Bunny versus Monkey, of which this is the ninth volume, is surreal and satirical. And readers have to pay attention to get the jokes. And at this the end she says don't get me wrong it's not only clever and original it's also satisfyingly silly we can have the sophistication with the fun and the joy as well and actually um in the recent bookseller lists about the top 50 authors in last year's sales top of the list julia donaldson you know yeah absolutely covering them but uh, we've got in there Jamie Smart, uh, yeah. Bunny, Bunny and Monkey, number 22. And this list is not children's. This is top 50 authors um, across all types of books. Um, and Alice yeah. Oseman, who, uh, the Heartstopper series, which is had a, a yes. phenomenal. So I think as teachers, yes. we've got to be thinking about how we're using them. And yeah. And what what message are we sending about them to pupils and to parents so that parents yes. feel comfortable with their children getting them out of the library, purchasing them yep. uh, in the shops? Because those popular ones will be on the supermarket shelves as well. Um, yep. and, and, you know, it's, it is encouraging reading and they are, you know, important. I remember yeah, yeah. this is a good number of years ago, Jane, um, I really wanted to bring comics into the classroom and I purchased a batch of like real comics because that's a real yes. phenomenon, isn't it? Like adults who read yes. them, um, but they um, need a bit of censoring some of those real comics. Uh, if you if you fancy doing that in your classroom, there's, there's a bit of language that you can sharpie out. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. The, the women, Jane, <laughs> the women, let's not- talk about the shape of those boobs. I've never yeah, met a yeah. real woman with a conical shaped boob, but in the comic world, so yeah, they're just, all there. Just be uh, careful yeah. what what kind of messages. I mean, as when I was a kid, I used to get the um, the Care Bears magazine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think comics. Yeah, I'm are a, a bit older than you. Oh, what did you have? Go on. Oh, I had really naff stuff like, um, actually, I'm trying to think, but, um, oh, but, you know, like Bunty, 
like rubbish. Oh, that is yeah, old. Jane, that yeah. is like yeah, really old not. school. <laughs> but like the girl, the girl comics were really like how to be, um, how to walk straight, and and <gasps> the naughtiness at the private school. And oh yeah, it was so awful. Jackie, yeah, Jackie was a little bit, you know, as you got more to teenage years, and it'd be like a photographic diary of um, your boyfriend snogging somebody else at the disco, and and that lots of thinking bubbles. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't really for me. But what is interesting is. Um, as part of my reading heritage, I remember for about two years um, saving up um, money to get uh, The Adventures of Tintin. And oh. I just was obsessed, obsessed with that comic um, and and other um did you, have uh, you know, that was a bit like you go and buy the book. Yeah, you go and buy it as a book uh, or take it out of the library. But yeah, obsessed with those. Uh, but in my local area, actually, in my area, Alan Moore was born and he lives locally in Northamptonshire and he's the world's greatest uh, graphic novel author, in my opinion. You know, he wrote Watchmen and that is, um, obviously, Alan Moore is a little bit more top-end secondary, but kind of a reminder that, um, you know, comics are for grown-ups, you know, and older children and... uh, and uh, upstairs, I'm thinking in Oscar's room, he's got um, about six graphic novels that um, he really treasures, you know, Long Way Down and um, so forth. So, um, yeah, they're a, they're a family favourite here in our house, got to say. Brilliant. That's good to hear. I think hear some teachers using them where they've, I, th- I think, like the Alex Ryder series where you can have the novel and the yes. graphic and you can compare and no. you know look look at differences and, and experience them but yeah yeah right. I think yeah graphic novels good news but let's keep building that knowledge and you know think about how how we're using them we've got uh, reading rocks book of the week coming up at the beginning of february that's a a new anthony horowitz graphic novel so so look right. out for that people can yeah. i just tell you a little story about the care bears magazine yes this is just probably just for the benefit to annoy my brother who doesn't listen to the podcast. But, you know, when you, your childhood and there's little memories that stick out, we we did yeah. get mag- magazines and like we were encouraged to, you know, do all the word searches and join in the competitions. And yeah, yeah. Ricicles was coming out. Do you remember that serial, Ricicles? No. What's well, Ricicles like? Is that like Cocoa Pops? I think it no? was a little what? bit like... Um, what do I mean? Ricicles, like um, what do I mean? snap? Like bit like snap, crackle, and pop. What's that one? Cocoa pops, rice krispies. Right, a bit like rice krispies, I think. Well, anyway, they, they had this competition, and I don't even know what you had to do for the competition, but I know it was in the Care Bears magazine, and I entered. Yeah. And you know, this is a long time ago. People didn't order loads of stuff online. You weren't constantly getting parcels. You know, this is no. like late 80s and it was on my brother's birthday and this parcel arrived and he was so mad that it was for me and I'd won (laughs) this competition (laughs) and I won a little radio a DJ radio I've still got it maybe that's just to taunt him and it's a little radio you know just am fm old school thing and it just has a little head wobble and a mouth open Um, 
so you know enter competitions in magazines it's that it's a way to annoy your siblings yeah but I'll tell you what that is it, that is just such a core memory when that happens isn't it when you when you do I can remember writing to Lady Bird books and oh. asking them um asking them how a book was made and I received a parcel that was I honestly I wish I'd have kept it but it was from uh, every point of the book's journey and somebody had somebody as part of the process had written it in in calligraphy pen and <gasps> sent me let's say the stitching a book part before it was you know the cover had gone on and things like that I mean it's just fascinating um because I was running because I was running a library at home do you know what I mean and uh, the person which I was the only person coming to me library was my gran and um yeah so did she return her books on time no, no, but she only had like two minutes to read them and give them back. Otherwise, I'd tell her off. And uh, yeah, because I was a very cowbag librarian in my house. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I Honestly. love that. They, do you want to play yeah. libraries? And everyone go, no, no, not with Jane. No, libraries no. With Jane. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't playing mums and dads. I was playing libraries and nobody came to the library. Yes, that was my childhood. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, Shall we, should we swiftly move on? And uh, can yeah, I tell you about do. our guest? Yes. So today's guest is Rosa Legino Bell from Diverse History UK. Um, and they work with schools to help them decolonize the curriculum and you know bring diversification into school. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with her. Shall we bring her in? Yeah, brilliant. Hello, Rosa, and welcome to the Teacher Squad podcast. So lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's uh, really, really nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, we've got lots to discuss. We've been reading a lot about your great work and the phrase demystifying the decolonisation of the curriculum pops up. So can you tell us a little bit about what what does that actually mean? What does it look like, you know, in a school, in a classroom? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, you're, you're at risk of me going on a seriously like in-depth historical <laughs> explanation. <laughs> so I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, I've been I've been a history teacher in secondary schools for coming up to fifteen years, and when I started teaching, um, I became aware that we were still teaching the same things that I done when I was at school. Um, and it was kind of the, the same thing, not all schools at all, but it, often it was happening where the same stuff was getting churned out. And, and I just felt um, that it really wasn't amplifying enough, enough voices. Um, there wasn't enough people's experiences being shared through, through the history curriculum, but also other curricula as well. Um, and I worked at a really progressive school in East London where um, the, the history department in particular did a huge amount of work on um, making sure their history curriculum was really diverse. Um, and because it, it, it was a very sort of diverse school, there was a lot of students from a variety of cultures there. Um, and that was what really inspired me to, um, to do something about it myself. So I went on to another school, became head of department where I really kind of put my energies into amplifying as many voices as possible. And then I realised that actually... Um, this is something I could do on a wider scale because I believe there's a, I'm, I passionately believe that there's a real, real need for it. 
And I also genuinely think that the majority of educators would like to do it, would like to have a more kind of representative curriculum, but either they don't know where to start or they don't have the time or they're scared of potential backlash, particularly when you're talking about the kind of experiences of LGBTQ plus people. For example, there can be sort of parental backlash or even from from the school, you know, you, you never know what, what people's views are. So I think there's a variety of things um, that, that make people want to get some extra support, I suppose. Um, and so I guess one of the, the biggest things that we do is um, review existing curricula in schools. Um, so that will be, for example, so we actually do develop them from scratch as well. But I found that one of the sort of most popular services is, is a school will get in touch and say, we've got this you know, scheme of work or this curriculum that we're really proud of. We worked really hard on it. We, we, you know, we love it and we don't want it to be kind of completely rewritten, but we would really like somebody with a historical background um, and and who's an educator, which obviously I am both those things to look through it and say, okay, let's say, okay, you're looking at the Tudors here. Have you thought about looking at um, Africans in Tudor England um, because there's quite a lot of research done, especially by Dr. Miranda Kaufman, who wrote the book, The Black Tudors, um, that shows that actually Tudor Britain was pretty multicultural, whereas that's not necessarily what we've been told no. previously. Or or I can say, okay, well, you're looking at the Tudors. Why don't you look at the fact that Henry VIII introduced um, the first act that made homosexual um, relationships and intercourse more specifically made it an executable offence. Um, why not Why not look at that? So it's not about eradicating history. It's about adding to it and bringing new voices into it. Um, I guess one of the things, one of the criticisms of decolonisation that you often hear is people saying, well, you know, we can't just wipe out white British history. We don't want to, you know, we, we can't just eradicate all of that. What about know our history if you like mm-hmm. um in in quotations for the <laughs> for the benefit of listeners um yeah and, and I just I don't think it is about eradicating at all some people might disagree with me but for me it's about adding to and bringing in new voices to stuff that we already teach and so that's probably the most common thing that we do for schools and and probably the aspect of the job that I really in, enjoy the most um yeah. Again, when we think about decolonization, I suppose I should probably explain that a little bit. Um, it's become one of those buzzwords, hasn't it? That's been a, that's coming up more and more in education. Um, but not everybody necessarily understands what it actually means, um, and it is it's related to the time of empire. So Britain had a huge empire from well started with Queen Elizabeth I, the last Tudor queen, and, and kind of increased in size up until the mid-1900s. Um, and with that came a lot of kind of racist rhetoric, racist ideas that were perpetuated in order to justify colonising countries all over the globe. Um, and, uh, yeah, so a- as well as that, um, there was a lot of kind of, what, how do I say this? So there was a white white people, especially white men, were given priority. Um, you know, if you were, a, in fact, I should say rich white men, actually, because a lot, a lot of working class white people were exploited as well in, in empire. 
And so really, unless you were a wealthy white man, you didn't really get a look in. Um, and that's when it's, when we talk about decolonization, we're talking about trying to use education to unpick a lot of these kind of racist, sexist, homophobic views that really, I don't want to say came about during empire. Some of them did, but were really perpetuated during the time of the British empire, um, in order to kind of secure white patriarchal supremacy, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's about it for me, decolonization is about bringing in a range of different voices. Anybody who historically has been silenced or forgotten or left out. Um, I want to find those, those stories and those experiences. And it can be quite difficult, um, because they don't necessarily get recorded or archived, right? But we want to kind of make sure that every student feels represented by the curriculum. Um, and that's what decolonization is to me. Um, I know I went on a bit of a <laughs> long that's explanation. Brilliant. That's brilliant. One of the yeah. phrase that I picked up from your website that I really liked was lesser told narratives. And I think that's what you've just expanded on there. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, that's, that's my, my passion. It's sticking up for the little guys I guess <laughs> love it <laughs> yeah really good and if you think about you know the, the very nature of human being we are the um you know we become the stories that we tell ourselves yes. um yes. you know are we able to uh, see ourselves in all parts of um kind of narratives in the past and heritage um and kind of that connection with kind of where we've come from uh, and the links and joins across kind of geography and and history I suppose mm. um I've as I've been listening to you and, and thank you actually Rosa for that kind of really detailed explanation uh what struck me there is that kind of anxiety if you want to improve your curriculum mm. um the way you're sort of uh, coming at it in this sort of dovetail approach where it's not babies out with bathwaters. We're, we're coming to look at what you've already got and then sort of putting in sort of um, insightful layers that, that widen our understanding of that kind of the, of, of the history journey mm. and, and, and the interconnections. So that's, that's really brilliant. fascinating. However, um, I also know in my work, a bit like yours, you know, working with individuals and in different schools up and down the country that um, they change is just so exhausting for schools. And let me tell you, they're sick of it. Um, mm. it what, what are some of the barriers you find? What are some of the things that are really tricky? Um, and, and you're sort of, sort of hinting at that sort of nervousness about judgment from parents. Um, you know, we see sometimes, don't we, that things can blow up about sex education. Do you feel there is a nervousness about kind of history education, you know, and the, the impact um, we might have on, on a community if um, they don't feel things are being done how they'd like? I don't know. No, you're, abs you're absolutely right. Um, the nervousness about it, I would say, probably is... It's funny because in a way it's the biggest barrier, but it's also one of the biggest reasons why people want to ask for my help because they really want to make positive changes, but they think that they just, I, I guess they just want somebody to kind of guide them through it and to, to just to provide the support because it can be scary. And, and you know, we've, we've all worked in education and we know that, that there can be challenges from communities or 
or religious bodies or or parents um <clears throat> so there's a kind of there's a couple of things that I do in order to try and kind of lay that number the number one thing that I say to schools and and as you can imagine um the one of the areas that we do get do see backlashes is from teaching lgbtq plus history um one of the things I've had, because we have a diverse history UK, that's who we are. We have a presence online. And um, some of the comments I've had on social media before have, have said, oh, it's disgusting that you're teaching about, you know, gay, gay sex to, to um, children. And I say, hold on a second. Nobody said anything about sex. <laughs> Just because we're talking about LGBTQ plus people, that doesn't mean that we're talking about sex. We're talking about people's experiences. Yeah. And, you know, and I guess that's sort of because it is getting less, but there is still that sort of endemic stereotype that, like, you know, homosexuality equals perversion. And luckily, most people don't think that way anymore. But that certainly, again, is talking of historic attitudes. That is a historic attitude that with some people kind of remains. So it's trying to undo those attitudes and help people to understand that, you know, does, just because we're talking about the experiences of a gay person or a trans person, it doesn't mean that it's going to be inappropriate or about sex. So that's that's something that's come up a few times. Um, and and Which parents, is important, isn't it? Yeah, it's so important that um, it, it, you know once you get into that topic, uh, that I think that is where the challenge is: is the um, it's the narrow mindedness and the sexualization, and yeah. less about. The, the, the relationship aspects, which is particularly if you work in primary, um, you know, uh, obviously, you know, when they're in year six, we'll be dealing with um, sex education. But, you know, a lot of our work in primary is um, helping children to feel seen and mm. um, relationship building and all the the layers of that sorry i cut across you there rosa because you wanted to talk about no it's fine uh, parents. <laughs> it's absolutely yeah. fine um i like talking about all sorts of all sorts of things connected to this so you, honestly you're fine <laughs> um so yeah you're totally right um it is you're you're completely right it's not you know i'm, I'm not going to go into a school and say in fact any school let, let alone primary school and say okay well let's talk about the sex lives of these 10 famous you know, historical gay people. Like, obviously it's not that. Let's say with primary school, with year two, year three, it might be, okay, let's look at one of the first really successful British um, female football players, Lily Parr, um, who was also an uh, openly gay woman at the time. Yes, she she had a girlfriend. Uh, obviously they weren't allowed to marry at this point, And she was an awesome football player. That's all you need to say. You know, you can talk a lot more about the fact that she was you know, that she was a woman, really, actually. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it's it's so much more than... It, I don't really even do too much with the history curriculum. Obviously, it's not really about relationships at all as such, um, not, not explicitly anyway. Um, and the other thing I say to schools is if they're nervous, because, again, it is the LGBTQ plus stuff that schools tend to be the most nervous about, I say, well, you know, if if parents do challenge it, then your response has to be LGBTQ plus people are, a, are protected. They're a protected characteristic in the Equality Act. Um, and it is our legal responsibility to look after this group and support this group. Um, and so, you know, 
it's it's totally legal to be trans, to be gay, to be a lesbian, to be non-binary, whatever it is. And so we're not doing anything outside law. In fact, we're working with inside what the law asks us to do as state educators. And I think um, if, if schools are empowered and, and have that knowledge ready, um, then then they can just draw the line and stand firm, can't they, and not have to navigate. It's almost like when people get their heckles up about things that they're not sure about or anxious and it raises their prejudices, they, they seem to lose a bit of common sense. Like you said, imagine that you're going to be teaching them about all kinds of sexual stuff and it's just not the case. So I think you giving schools uh, that language to be able to talk about it is, is, is brilliant. I wanted to ask you about you being a female voice for LGBTQ. Uh, we... We're two female hosts on this podcast, and you know our our um, our profession is mostly female. Uh, yet there are lots of male voices, uh, more than more than female, representing. And and I can think of a couple of um, role models and teachers and education consultants working powerfully to change the voices about LGBTQ but actually not many female. And um, do you feel that, that you're, you know, one of the few voices? Um, how does that impact you? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I have to be honest, it's not really something that I'd kind of explicitly thought about before. So it's a really, it's a really interesting point. Um, I think it's funny really, because I, I was raised in, in such a way that like, I've never felt silenced by my gender. And I know I know that, and I guess that's testament to my parents in a way. Like my yeah. my dad would gave me exactly the same opportunities that he that he would have would have done to a, to a son, and was always help making me help him mend things and carry things and stuff. And so because of my upbringing, I'd never felt that sort of fear that I know some women have because they've spoken to me about it before. Um, so I guess that puts makes me feel quite confident. But um, with with speaking. But it's, it's quite interesting. And I think you're right. It is. It, I guess it's in the same way that um, we're in a very, very female dominated profession, but there's still a huge amount of men in senior leadership, despite the fact that women overwhelmingly um, outweigh men as, as teachers. Um, I'm not sure of the exact statistic now, but I know at least a few years ago, like in SLT, it was way outweighing in, term, in men. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's that same sort of thing, isn't it? Um, his, again, historically, like men have been the, the voice, the voice, the mouthpieces. Um, and so in a way that sort of continues, maybe it's because a lot of women feel, don't feel confident to speak out or don't feel they would be listened to. Um, but yeah, I'm always up for being a mouth, <laughs> mouthpiece for women. Brilliant. The community, so. um, and in terms of the good work, Rosa, uh, I'm just going to finish on, on this really, just to ask you in a very practical way, you know, maybe with some nitty gritty examples that people can kind of reflect on and learn from. Um, on In terms of your day-to-day -day work with a school, could you talk us through kind of a success story, um, something that has particularly happened because of your your work with a school? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um there's so we've been we've been going since 2020. Um and there's a few 
kind of things, people we've worked with that really stand out in terms of, you know, I felt, God, we really helped this school and and you can really see the impact that it's had on this school or this trust because we work with a lot of, a lot of trusts. Um, so I'll talk about one example of a school that uh, actually an academy trust called Genogli that I worked with in, um, they're ba- mostly in Nottinghamshire uh, and, and surrounding areas. But yeah, most of the schools were in Nottinghamshire. Um, and I was first approached by um, the deputy head of um, a lovely little primary school called, uh, I think, Springfield Academy in Bullock in, in Nottingham, which is kind of one of the less sort of privileged areas, if you like. Um, so they had a wide variety of different types of students that went to the school. Um, and that was, they, they, they said to me and uh, they kind of got in touch and they said, look, we've got all these students we've got. It's very multicultural um, from all sorts of walks of life. And we don't feel that our history and PSHE curriculum is reflective of that. Um, so the, uh, this is what I was talking about earlier with the curriculum reviews. They'd just done up their their curriculum and they were like really passionate about a lot of it. And they said, you know, so we don't want it written from scratch, which I completely understand because I think teachers have to have autonomy over their curriculum anyway. Um, and yeah, so I, I went through that and, you know, it, took, it takes a long time, obviously, because um, you have to really think not only about what you want to include, how how it's going to be taught and and a lot of research needs to be done too. So I spent a long time going through this curriculum, both the history and the PSHE curriculum, which we've done actually quite a lot because um, what we found has really, really worked is when you kind of design or, or add to the history curriculum, but you can then go through the PSHE curriculum and make sure that what you put into that directly links to and supports yeah. Um, what's happening in history. So for example, with, with this particular school, with EYFS, um, we weren't talking to them in, in PSHE. We weren't, we weren't talking to them specifically about, you know, gay people or race or racism. It was about bringing in activities that would just get them to think about inclusion or identity or belonging. So like the building blocks, if you like, so that when they're a bit older, they can go on to have a better and a more sort of personal understanding of, of some of the issues. So we went through both the PSHE and, and the history curriculum and and brought in all sorts of, I suggested all sorts of different things. Um, for for example, one of the things that I was really pleased about was um, they obviously needed to have an element of local history and Nottinghamshire is, is you know, very historically industrial area with a, with a very rich sort of mining history. Um, and what we also know, sorry, my historical tangent again here, but what we also <laughs> know is that white working classes and immigrants have been pitted against each other by the media, for example, for a long, long time. And actually both of these groups are being downtrodden and exploited by society, right? So it was this idea of looking at mining history, the local mining community, but looking at so looking very much at the role of white working class people, but also the immigrants, particularly Caribbean immigrants who came over um, post-World War II um, and worked alongside the white working classes. Because, you know, we get told constantly that it's been racially, it's been a history of conflict. And yes, that's part of it. But actually, there's lots of examples of white working classes and, and you know, the the 
work, working classes for, of people of color have really come together and been friends and worked in unity and harmony. And that's really what we're about is trying everything that we do is about trying to make society more unified, more harmonious. So every little bit, bit is really, really thought through, um, if that makes sense. So it was looking at not just the white working classes or or the kind of uh, black working classes is looking at their shared history, their shared positive history, because I think that's super important. Um, Definitely. I agree with that, that we always, we find those moments to celebrate where, um, you know, there has been um, good relationships and cohesions. Otherwise you become at risk of sort of, um, you know, only sharing kind of uh, tragedy, you know, because they're, as you say, will be moments to celebrate as well in the past. Obviously, there's some atrocities, but it has to be balanced, doesn't it? Right. You know, um, and real. Uh, but I suppose that is the trickiest thing, as you kind of alluded to earlier, with that sort of primary sources of evidence. And uh, because, you know, there, there have been a, a backlog of untold stories, then actually trying to go back and unearth them is, is going to be much more challenging. But it is there if we, we look hard enough. Absolutely. We'll yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it really it really is. And I think the other thing that I kind of always say to teachers is talk to the kids about the historiographical challenges. So explain, to, get the kids to understand why it's more difficult to find out about these histories like that can be absolutely shared with them like you know you might spend hours and hours and hours doing the research tell the kids why why has that happened why have you not just been <laughs> yeah, yeah. a little phrase and it's come up with tons of stuff online or, or something so I think that's part of the process so I, I think it can actually be really useful for them from a from not just a knowledge perspective but from kind of a skills and a critical thinking perspective as well um and the other thing that we we did sorry going back to what we were doing with the school um the other thing that we always try and do if the schools or the trust is into it is to do a staff cpd um so i try and do a cpd session at the beginning before we start working on it so just explaining like looking at the history because a lot of adults actually don't understand the history of colonialism and the impact so we do kind of a, a session on the history with the staff and try and because we want them to be all be on board. You know, we, we want them to understand and feel passionate about having this kind of representative curriculum. We then go away and do the review and then go back and kind of look through, explain everything that we've done and why we've done it and and where they can find like where they can find supporting resources and stuff if they're making the lessons themselves. Um and with the Janogli Trust, we did, this is probably the biggest CP, actually definitely the biggest CPD I've ever done because we had about 500 people from across across the trust and it was kind of everybody. So from um, not not just kind of teaching staff, it was all the support staff. So it was a really, really big array of, of types of people. Um, and one of the things that, I, that I'm really kind of careful to talk to people about is is this idea that actually when it comes to colonialism and the impact on us, every, unless you were like part of the wealth, the wealthy kind of ruling classes, we were all, or we all had ancestors that were exploited, whether black or white or anything else. We all had ancestors that were exploited by the system, you know, whether we were so oppressed in colonial Nigeria or whether we were working in in the factories 
um, of East London, you know, it was all about oppression of, of people without voices and without power. So that's something that I really, I really want people to think about is how, how everybody's just been pitted against each other in the name of a few getting power and, and huge vast sums of money. Yeah, I think. And actually, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say that is the most important thing that you want children to be critical about you know uh being able to as an adult you know as a future citizen being able to uh be kind of uh understanding deeply understanding of kind of the power play in in current society mm, yeah 100 yeah and i'm um, like really really passionate about that especially in a society with lots of emerging um extremist groups you know on all on all sides far right extremism for example is massively increasing at the moment and, and if and if a lot of our students have done lessons about the cohesion of these groups in society and actually who's really doing the exploiting then then maybe hopefully they might think twice um if they would if anybody tried to approach them with these kind of really awful extremist ideologies yeah that yeah. is the importance of the work isn't it and it's great to hear that when you work with schools it's very uh, about the 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 place and the school and the community and that's what a curriculum is isn't it it's not just something we buy off a shelf and apply you know it is very much about that place we could chat to you all night um but you know we're all busy people so i'm sure some people will be thinking oh we'd love to work with you so where can they find you where can they follow you and get in touch with you yeah, so um, please do get in touch. We're always happy to work with new schools. And, you know, the more people that get in touch with me, the, the better I feel about society because it's just so nice to know that there are so many like-minded educators that are really kind of passionate about about making an inclusive curriculum. Um, so we're called Diverse History UK. Um, we are on Facebook um, as Diverse History UK. We are on Twitter at Diverse History and the same as same for Instagram as well. Um, and our website is www.diversehistory.co.uk. So you can contact us um, directly through there. So as well as as well as the curriculum reviews, we also offer um, kind of standalone workshops or sometimes schools get in touch and say, we'd really like um, a scheme of work developed on um, you know, LGBTQ plus history from 1533 to 1900, for example, and we go away and create that for them. Um, so there's all sorts of services that we have. We even mentor LGBTQ plus students because I don't know if I said this, but myself and my wife obviously are LGBTQ plus um, and my wife co-founded Diverse History UK with me a few years ago. Um, so we we kind of, we, we provide mentoring, which is obviously more pastoral. Um, there's lots of different things that we can do and lots of different ways that we can help schools to make a, a diverse and representative and, and um, kind of compassionate curriculum that uh, where all, all students feel, feel heard and hopefully all parents and all people in the community feel heard as well. Um, there's also a bit about our pedagogy on our website so we've had we've been developing this over the few few years and and our our kind of kind of simply our pedagogical model is about diversification obviously differentiation um because i 
genuinely believe that every student can access academia if it is packaged in the right way. Um, it's also about developing academic skills as well. Um, kind of linking to what I, I just said, I think, you know, in history, we look at academic interpretations, we look at sources, it's all quite high level, but um, not just I believe, I've seen actually in action that every student can access it if it's done in the right way. And finally, driven by students. So we're all about kind of independent learning, active learning. Um, and that can be in a variety of ways. So please, please do get in touch. And even if it's just for a chat about how we can, you know, how we might be able to help you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Rosa. Thank you very much for Thank having you, me. Well, guess what, Heather? I'm going to go down memory lane again. And I yeah. actually think this book was in my library. And I've actually got so many uh, fond associations with books from my childhood. Uh, and I read a lot as a kid, not because I was a SWAT. It's just because life was so boring. You know, there's two TV channels. There was no live sport. Nothing was open on a Sunday. There were no games apart from board games, you know. And uh, I was playing games that Henry VIII probably played, like Snakes and Ladders <laughs> and I mean, rubbish. And um, this book... Um, I read at home and then we read it in school and it was called uh, Emile and the Detectives. And um, this is an adventure and um, Emile's mother um, saves up lots of money uh, so that he uh, can go and stay at his aunties and grandmothers in Berlin and uh, he travels on his own. And he falls asleep. And I just, this is, I can remember feeling utter panic when I read this for the first time. Um, and it goes like this. Emil woke up just as the train was pulling out of a station and found himself on the floor feeling very frightened. He must have been asleep, he thought, and slipped off the seat. Now, for some reason, his heart was beating like a sledgehammer. He could not remember where he was at first. Then gradually it all came back to him. Of course, he was, he was on a train going to Berlin in a compartment with a man in a bowler hat and he had fallen asleep. The man in the bowler hat, that brought Emil wits back. He sat up and rubbed his eyes. The man was gone. Emil slowly got to his feet, feeling quite shaky. Then from sheer force of habit, he began to brush the dust off his trousers and jacket. And that reminded him of the money. Was it safe? He could not bear to feel for it in case it had gone. He leant against the door, too anxious to raise a finger, just staring at the seat where that man called Grudet had been sitting and he had gone to sleep and snored. Now Grudet was gone. It was silly to take the worst for granted like this just because the man had left the train while Emil was asleep. Naturally, passengers leave all the time. Well, he'd pinned the money in an envelope securely in the lining of his jacket, so surely it must be safe. He'd only to put his hand into that inner pocket on the right side and he could feel it. But... When he put his hand in his pocket, it was empty. The money had gone. 
He felt right around the corners of the pocket. He searched frantically through all the other pockets too. He ran his hands over the outside of his jacket, but there was nothing. There was not the crackle. The notes were gone. He gave one last frantic rummage around the inner pocket and cried out. The pin was still there and he'd run his finger across it. It stuck in and a bead of red blood pricked his finger. Oh, what was he to do? Well, he wasn't going to cry. Um, it wasn't It wasn't the money. It was just actually because of his mother. You've got to understand, his mother had taken months to save the £7 so he could go to Berlin. He knew that. And all he needed to do was not fall asleep on that train. And you know what? While having that crazy dream, that pig of a man was actually stealing the money. Well, maybe he he was going to cry. It was enough to make him cry. What was he going to do? And why had this terrible thing happened? Oh, dear. And it just <sighs> was... At that age, I remember going on a school trip and actually spending my pocket money on some plastic tat, uh, you know, <laughs> while I was there and losing that bit of plastic tat and yeah. just like that lost things. And that, you know, your parents would say, well, what did you spend your money on? And not only was it rubbish, I'd lost it. I think it was all in the mix of that. And when I read that chapter, it was like this, this is bringing, <laughs> this is the, bringing it all back. It's a bit oh, triggering, no. Jane. It was <laughs> triggering. Oh, life. Oh. <laughs> I hope yours is karma. Please My make sure it's karma. Well, it is karma. Mine is inspired by boobies. Um, oh, good. And tits. tits ahoy. But, uh, you know, blue-footed boobies, blue tits, great tits, marsh tits. I'm, oh, mine's inspired... Oh. Don't get excited, Jane. Mine is inspired by uh, the RSPB Great A Big Garden Bird Watch, which is coming up towards the end of this month. Uh, and it got me thinking about birds. I love a bit of bird spotting. Yesterday, spotting some starlings and some pied wagtails. And um, it reminded me of a very old blog. And when I reread it, that I, it talked about my daughter being five and she's now in year seven so but it said that when we share books we share something of ourselves and actually you know the books that uh, link to your interests or your children's or your class's interests they, they breathe life in and out of each, each other don't they and it shares what what we're into um so th this this book that I've chosen uh links to a blackbird this is one of my very favourite non-fiction books. It's just a very simple RSPB first book of birds. But I've chosen to read from um, this book. Uh, it's by Catherine Baylor. Um, so people may be fans of October, October. Uh, and she has a beautiful uh, writing style. And this is called mm. Birdsong. Um, and it's beautifully illustrated by Richard Johnson. And it's published by the wonderful Barrington Stoke. Absolutely love their books that are um, yes. uh, dyslexic friendly. But they're cracking if you want like a shorter 
very high quality read to share and discuss with your class. And at the back, it, it tells you that there are three words to describe this book that are music, healing and nature. Um, so the, the journey of the book, book is is absolutely gorgeous, as is the follow on. Um, book as well and I'll put the links in in the show notes for people if they've not discovered those yet but little Annie has been involved in a a car accident and it stopped her playing a flute and this journey of friendship that she has with Noah who is nurturing these blackbirds and then their eggs uh, nurtures her back to being able to play her flute again and I just wanted to read a tiny bit from the beginning and a tiny bit from the end um yeah, the bit brilliant. at the beginning has I've got, got some gorgeous plan. Yeah, oh, link perfect. to that. Sorry, Heather. It's so uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And I, I bet you in this chapter one you picked there's a couple of little writing devices that that children could have a little go at have uh, themselves. So yes. this is chapter yeah, one. Right. There is music everywhere if you know how to listen. I'm walking home and I hear notes in the tap of my feet on the pavement and the fizz of a can of coke. I can find music in the whoosh of our front door opening and in mom calling my name. I can fit the notes that I hear together and they build into a symphony, a symphony of sounds that swirl and swish and lift me up like I'm flying, mostly. But not when the music is the sound of glass breaking. Not when it's the sound of metal crumpling. Not when it's the sound of tyres screeching. Not when it's the sound of me screaming. And then we skip to the end and she needs to write a composition to apply to go to this music school and the relationship with the blackbird and uh, the chicks has helped her reconnect. It only takes me a few days to write my composition once I've worked out what I need to do. It's like the music has been growing inside me since I first heard the blackbirds gathering their song. I stand in the secret world and I play the notes that have been waiting to escape from me. The blackbird lifts her voice to the sky and I take the notes and I spin them and I thread them with my own music. It's like playing an orchestra. We twist our notes together until they're just a part of each other instead of a girl and her flute and a blackbird in a nest. My fingers do what I want them to do. They're still not perfect, but they're part of me again. Sometimes I stop to write down what we've just done and the blackbird keeps singing. The mother takes the sounds I played today or yesterday or a week ago and she makes them her own as she sings to her babies. We had to find our music again. It was wrapped up in fury and anger and pain and sadness, but it never left us. It's magic. Oh, that book is just amazing. And that uh, semantic thread of musical language all through it, you know, we, you know, I often talk about kind of uh, extended metaphors done well. That book is just a beautiful cacophony of words, you know, and um, it's a, it's a definite class reader in my opinion that book absolutely and the night jaws the, the second one and that it just it's like every word has been very there's no fillers it's very carefully no. 
carefully chosen. And just on the note of uh, bird books. Clever girl. Um, note. See note, see there. what I did there. Um, <laughs> keep a look at on our Reader Rocks Instagram because we're going to be sharing some birdie books uh, with, you know, Big Garden Bird Watch in mind. And top secret, one of the what? January Reading Rocks books is a bird book. I shall say no more. It is top secret as I ever. like you whispering at me like that, Heather. That's quite, that's... Is it a bit ASMR? ASMR. <laughs> I had a little twinge, something ached. Anyway, uh, Heather, <laughs> it's always a delight. Uh, before we actually go to the gutter and nothing else, let's leave it there. I've had a wonderful time. And it's big love from Heather and Heartbursts. From Jane. See you next week. See you, everyone.